Psalm 51 and verse 1. This uh, is by far the most powerful, the most poignant psalm I believe in in the entire book of Psalms. I would say the most important. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Father, as we consider this, I, I know, I know there is sin in this room. There is sin in our lives. Lord, there are those who right now are actively suppressing sin in their lives, trying to hide it from you, from others. Father, there are those here who are broken by their sin and recognizing their failures. Father, there are those here who are just trucking along, feeling like everything is just right and fine and good, and who are about to face a great temptation, maybe in days, through which they may fall. And so, Father, we just ask that You would open our hearts to Your heart and understand this whole sin issue better especially in light of Your loving kindness and grace. May we see Jesus. And may we follow after You and understand our cleansing in Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, everyone was doing it. You often hear that. Everyone's doing it. And at least among the kings and the monarchs and the rulers and despots of the great nations of the earth, they were. Everyone was doing it. It was business as usual down south in Egypt or out west in Philistia or across the Jordan there in Edom and Moab, Assyria, and down in Babylon. I'm talking about adultery and murder and cover-up and intrigue. It was business as usual. It's the way politics are often played. And history is full of the sordid affairs of state. And we've seen it in our own country. We've been very aware of salacious scandals. 
And how men rise to power and how men fall horribly. And so everyone was doing it, all the leaders. This was par for the course. You see a woman, you take the woman. <laughs> Reminds me of a line from uh, The Three Amigos, but I, I won't go there right now. <laughs> you see the woman, take the woman. <laughs> and this is what the kings did. I see her, I want her, she's mine. But David was supposed to be different. David, the, the shepherd king, the sweet psalmist of Israel... The man after God's own heart. Man, we watch David and say, yeah, that's the way I want to be. Until you get to chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. <laughs> Everything was great up to then. And I recall my, my son's third grade class, Hayden's third grade class, and they studied the kings of Israel and Judah. And going through their study, they would study a king and come to the end and give a grade. And they came to David and it was all A's until chapter 12, 2 Samuel. And after that, they struggled because they wanted to give David an A+, but they ended up giving him an A-. <laughs> I would have failed him. He should have gotten an F. Because of what he did. Because of how bad it was. Well, Rick, isn't every sin the same? Yeah, I understand that. But you know what? I haven't murdered somebody after having taken their wife, after having gotten her pregnant, after having found that I was in a horrible place and I had to somehow cover it up. Oh, I've sinned and sinned greatly. But you see David step out there. And David in his position, you know, he was a leader over all of of Israel, the united kingdom of Israel. Everybody looked to David. Everybody knew he was the man after God's own heart. Everybody knew he had been anointed as a teenager to be their king, chosen by God. Oh, he was in a, a position of great influence. And he blew it. Big time. My position of influence on this earth is minuscule by by comparison. And yet I'll tell you, I pray all the time, God, don't let me fall. Not just for me, but for this fellowship. God, don't let me fall. Don't allow me to be in a position where I will make sin choices that would bring reproach on this fellowship. David blew it. He was supposed to be different. Well, you know what? He was different. David was different. And that's why, in this whole sordid affair, his indirect murder, though intentional, and his suppression of the truth, that's why it ate him up inside. It tore David up. He wrote about it in Psalm 32, verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was drained away, as with the fever heat of summer. Had you been in David's palace back in the day, in that roughly nine-month period where he was hiding this horrible sin, I'm convinced you would have seen a difference. The David who normally hummed down the hallways, who was singing new psalms that he had just written as he was walking to and from the throne, as he was at the table, as he was out with friends, you would have seen a change in this man. The light that was in his eyes had gone out. He was suffering and struggling and in pain for nine months. He sank into this sequestered, secretive, sickening silence. He just held it all in. What finally broke that silence? God's heart. The Lord's own heart did. Let me read you the story. 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is the background of Psalm 51. Then the Lord sent Natan to David. And he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many great flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb 
which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie on his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man. He was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Oh, this ticked off David who knew justice. Man, if anyone knew justice, David did. And he heard this story from, from Natan and he said, How can this be? He said, it says his anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Natan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. Or in the Hebrew text, literally, this guy's a son of death. David is riled up. He must make fourfold restitution for the lamb. Because he did this thing and had no compassion. Fourfold restitution. Exodus 22, verse 1. Says in the law, if you kill another person's animal, you've got to replace it four times over. So David is speaking out of the law. And he's speaking out of righteousness. And he's speaking out of just, justice. And then, in what I believe is the most powerful and courageous moment in Scripture, Old Testament Scripture, Natan looks at David and says, You are the man. It's you, David. You're the one. You had all the flocks and herds. You had all you needed. You had many wives. And you had to go take a poor man's wife for yourself. Natan said to David, verse 7, You are the man, thus says the Lord God of Israel. It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added these things to you many more over. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Therefore now the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Boom. You're the man, David. This is not the way we say it. You're the man. You're the man. David is caught red-handed. The blood of Uriah on his hand. The scent of Bathsheba on his other hand. And the whole cover-up now is unveiled before David. And he's caught. And he could have done three things in reaction. David could have first off contradicted the charges. No, I didn't. Uh-uh. Wasn't me. Must have, you're confused. No, your information's wrong. Hey, denial is a common choice when we're caught in sin. I didn't do it. You know, you can deny sin, but the more you deny sin in your life, just understand, this is a spiritual truth. If you are suppressing, if you are hiding, if you are denying sin, it will produce bitter cynicism in you. And over time, it will begin to, as Paul told Timothy, it will begin to sear the conscience. The more we try to suppress and hide away sin and tuck it back here, the more our conscience gets to where we're having trouble even recognizing right versus wrong. David could have done that. Contradict the charges. He could have continued the cover-up. He was the greatest king in the history of the region. A monarch with absolute power. David could have summarily executed the prophet. Hey, he's the only other one who knows. Just take him out. That's what the kings of Egypt would have done. That's what would have happened there in Assyria. Just take out the the person bringing the charge and and you're covered. You're clean. Just keep it covered up. Deny it. 
I did not have sexual relations with Bathsheba. I didn't do it. You say I did it, you're gone. You're out of here. You're out of the administration. Bye-bye. See you later. He could have done both these things. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. I know something about Natan, the prophet, Nathan. I know that this guy was a friend of David's. I know he even named a child after him later on. So how could he summarily execute his own friend? He did Uriah. Uriah was David's friend. Do you know that? Uriah was not just some hack. He wasn't some unknown soldier, some expendable pawn sent off to the front lines to die for king and country. 2 Samuel 23 verse 39 tells us Uriah was one of David's mighty men. And not just one of the 600 or so that were mighty men. He was called one of the 30, the upper tier, the upper echelon of the mighty men. The most loyal, the most avid followers of David were the 30 and Uriah's name is listed among them. David sent him to the front lines. You know, some expendable soldier upon being sent to the front lines might think something was up. Uriah went willingly. Why? Because he trusted David. And David betrayed him to his death. By the way, anytime we deny or cover up sin, we risk the murder of relationships. When we refuse to acknowledge our own failure, our own sin, when we refuse to confess it, there are relationships in our life that start to die because of it. Marriages end because we won't confess sin. Relationships are broken and fall apart because one or the other or both refuse to acknowledge our own sinfulness in the problem. And worse than all that, when we deny our sin, we begin to break our relationship with God. It is hard to be in a relationship with God, to look Him in the eye when we're suppressing sin. Well, David could have contradicted the charges, continued the cover-up, or he could have confessed the crime. And that's what David chose to do. He owns up to his sin. You know, I think he'd been waiting all year long to do it. Just to get free of this stuff. Because secret sin is like solitary confinement. When nobody knows, and you're the only one who knows, and you've got to keep it covered. You've got to keep it quiet. You've got to protect... Because if they find out, wow, I mean, it's just going to ruin everything. And suddenly you start to feel like you're in a place that you cannot get out of as much as you want to get free. And David was there for nine months. Well, Natan comes to him and David is there listening and Natan continues. He says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'll raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. And it happened. Absalom, his son, would take David's wives to himself after driving David out of the city in full daylight of the people of Jerusalem. It's how a king said, I have now taken the throne from this other guy. It's how a throne was usurped. Part of that was take the harem, take the wives to yourself. Sleep with them and prove your power over the other guy. David's own son would do that. Indeed, the Lord says, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Natan, I have sinned against the Lord. Amazing. Natan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin, you shall not die. Excuse me? The Lord has taken away your sin, David. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. And so Nathan went to his house. Note that. We're getting to Psalm 51. But this is so incredibly critical. 
Because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemy of the Lord to blaspheme. And that is one of the most tragic things about sin, especially if you proclaim to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and you sin and you're hiding it and you're keeping it back and you're not willing to say, look, I I need God's grace. Other people will look at you and when the thing becomes known, they'll say, oh yeah, that's what you, you hypocrites. And they will blaspheme the name of the Lord. Yeah, let's go on. Psalm 51. Go ahead and go over there. Note the heading. I was going to give you an example, but I've already talked about it and I don't want to go back there. Psalm 51. The heading, it's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet Natan came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. But note the first four words. For the choir director. We're going to have the choir sing this. What? Of all the psalms, this is the last one I would hand to the choir director and say, hey, can you get a nice arrangement of this? Something kind of flowery, you know, that we can sing on a Sunday. He gives it to the choir director. Why would David publish his personal penitence for all Israel to sing? Because while it's intensely personal, it's also human conditional. David recognizes all Israel needed to sing this psalm. Everybody did. This psalm preaches to the choir because the choir needs confessing. And I'll tell you something else. Get a picture in your mind of those religious choirs. You've seen them on TV. They've got the robes, the big purple with the, maybe the, the white thing around them. and they're all, They have their little books and they're swaying to the music and singing. And they look so righteous. Let me tell you something about the choir. You don't know what's going on under the robe. Guy could be wearing shorts and sandals. You wouldn't know. Guy could have a muscle tee on. You wouldn't know. What's the point? The robes of religion cannot cover up the rags of sin. You can try. You can put on the thing. Make yourself look all righteous outwardly to everyone else. But underneath you could be dying inside because of secret sin. And this psalm preaches to the choir. Paul said in Romans 3.22 there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And what's amazing to me, even as as far down the road as we've walked, 2,000 years since Jesus died on the cross, resurrected, proclaimed grace to all people who have believed in Him, 2,000 years, and we still think when we sin that we're in it all alone. We still think, looking around the barn this morning, I'm the only one, and man, I hope he doesn't know what I think he knows because he's talking about me. (laughs) You are not the only one. It's a shameful lie of the enemy. He wants you to believe, man, I've sinned, nobody else has. I stink, and they're all clean. So no way I'm going to go up and confess because they're all going to look at me like I'm a sinner. Hey, we're all sinners. We've all been there. We all will be there. We all desperately need the forgiveness and freedom that comes with honest, raw, unadulterated confession. Look at verse 1. David writes, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. And when people say to me, I just don't know if God can forgive me, what you're saying is, I don't know if God truly is gracious. Because forgiveness, my friends, is not about you. And David points that out right off the bat. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. He doesn't say be gracious to me 
Because my confession is salted with graceful words. He doesn't say, be gracious to me, Lord, because I've cleaned up my act and I'm here and I've turned it all around. David, in essence, is saying, God, act like yourself. Lord, will you be who you are? He doesn't even mention his sin yet. He starts with grace. He appeals to God's nature. Understand the God of the Bible, Old Testament and New, is a God of loving kindness. The word is chesed. We use it a lot. The Greek, the Hebrew word, hesed. Because it speaks of something that we didn't even have a word for in our language, so we had to take two words, loving and kindness, and smunch them together. I just made up that word smunch, by the way. Feel free to use it. <laughs> loving kindness. If, if you type it in your computer, your spell check won't recognize it. You have to add it to your computer's dictionary to be a word that doesn't have those ugly squiggly lines under it. Loving kindness. Spurgeon said, What a choice word is that of our English version, a rare compound of precious things, love and kindness, sweetly blended into one. And that's the nature of God. That's why He forgives you. Not because you bring it to Him the right way, but because that's who He is. And that's where David begins. And did you catch the pattern of things in David's confession? He confessed after he was caught. Oh, That kind of invalidates the whole thing, doesn't it? You know, he got caught and then he confessed. That's not a confession. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. According to Scripture, Paul said in Galatians 6.1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. You find out someone's doing something wrong. That doesn't mean they're out. It means you go to them. And it means you offer grace and forgiveness even before they've asked for it. Why? Because that's what God does. Because notice again, back in 2 Samuel 12, the very first line out was, Then the Lord sent Natan to David. It doesn't say David was wallowing in his sin and cried out to the Lord, so the Lord responded with a prophet. It says, No, God saw the pain David was in, and God sent the word of forgiveness to him. God got the confession rolling. And confession, gang, confession only happens because God initiates it. You didn't even come up with it on your own. Spirit of God convicts us of our sin. The Spirit of God in a believer calls us to confession. And we confess in response. Paul says, Romans 2.4, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You know what I love about the Word of God? It points out again and again and again that there's only one God and I'm not Him. And you're not Him. That none of our goodness starts with us. It always starts with the Father. Even our very confession is a response to Him calling us out of our sin. God, Ephesians 2.4, God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so, God sends Natan to David. God initiates confession so He can be who He is, God of loving kindness. Micah 7.18 says, Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of His possession? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in unchanging love. Now recognizing this, beginning with grace, David goes on, verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions 
and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. And right there is the best view of sin in the entire Bible. Someone asks you, can you give me a, a good definition of sin? Take them right there. Psalm 51, verses 2 through 5. That defines sin for us. In fact, if you're a note taker, you may want to jot this down. We have three sections to this psalm. The way, it, the way it's written, the way it speaks. Verses 1 through 5 is the first part. 6 through 12 is the second part. And then it concludes with verses 13 through 19, the third part. Part 1, verses 1 through 5, gives us what we need in this world. An honest perspective of sin. Now, what I'm going to say about sin is not agreed upon in our world. It's not accepted in our world. Because in our world, people want to believe that they're good at heart. That at the base of all things, there is a goodness in man. (coughs) Excuse me. That we appeal to that goodness, to our better selves, the, the, the better angels of our mercy. That we hope that somehow we're going to eventually evolve to that place where we have reached great goodness. That's not an honest perspective of sin. And David gives one that is honest. Let me tell you a couple things about this. First off, that sin is rarely simple. Sin is rarely simple. We never just sin a little sin and then it's over and done with. It always gets complex, complicated, messed up. We get twisted and mired in the thing. David uses several words to describe the complexity of his sinful situation. Note these three words. Iniquity, sin, and transgressions. We've looked at them before. I want to make sure you've got these down. Because these three words, while they all speak of aspects of sin, they're not the same word. In the Hebrew, sin is kata'ah. We've talked about it. It means recognized wrongdoing. You know what it is. If I walked down to Tim right now this morning, midway through my lesson, and just, you know, clobbered him one. First of all, it would be stupid because he could lay me flat in no time. But if I did, if I just punched him in the face, you know what, I know that's wrong. That would be the wrong thing. On a Sunday morning, to attract non-believers. You know? Not the right thing. So I know. So that's sin. It's wrongdoing that's recognized. I understand that. Transgression, however, is pasha. <clears throat> that's rebellious wrongdoing. You've recognized it as sin, but you do it anyway. That's pasha. That's transgression. That's when I transgress. I have chosen now to act on what I knew to be wrong in the first place. Iniquity is the third, and it's the darkest. It's avon, and it means raw depravity. You can't help yourself. No, you just, you can't, it's going into that place of sin and you can't stop yourself. You do it anyway. Why? Because I love you, but you're depraved. And so am I. And that is the human condition. We have a sin nature. Well, I just don't know if I can accept that. All right, okay. Read the news. How's the goodness of man working out in the world right now? How's it going? Are we better now than we were 200 years ago. Oh, we have more technology, but that just creates more ways of us to sin in our depravity. Are we better than we were a thousand years? How about 2,000 years ago? How about since the creation of the world? Has mankind truly progressed in our ability to be good one to another? I think you know the answer. Sin is complex, gang. David confesses all three aspects of the sin going on here. 
I knew it was sin. I rebelled and did it anyway. And my depraved nature was driving me into the whole thing. It's just sin on top of sin. And transgression. And iniquity. McGee describes this well. He says, suppose I was holding a stick behind, you, behind me and I told you all it was a crooked stick. Not two of you in this barn this morning could describe the stick exactly the same because we wouldn't know, does it crook to the left, to the right, does it twist around? What does it look like? We don't know. But if I told you that I had a ruler behind me, a straight edge, and it was back there, just a normal 12-inch ruler, with the exception of color, you'd all know exactly what it looked like. In the same way, sin and goodness function. Sin is always complicated, always twisted. Goodness is simple. It's easy. We know what it is. It's not because we don't know what is right that we sin. It's because we don't want to do what is right. But it's obvious and clear righteousness is obvious before us. We know what it means to do the right thing. We just look for ways around it. C.S. Lewis said, you don't call a line crooked unless you have some idea of a straight line. Same with sin and righteousness. You don't know that it's sin unless you know what is right. But the sensibility to make good choices gets all blurred and seared over time. And that's the sin nature at work. Look at verse 5. David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This is just bad news, David is saying. Luther put it this way. He said, I have sinned, I do sin, and I shall sin to the end of the chapter. Because that's my nature. Interesting thing about verse 5. In fact, Tim was the one who who pointed this out to me, and I did a little research. Did you know that there are those who look at verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me, and they say, something's going on with David's mom. Something happened with David's mom. Well, you know what? She's not listed anywhere in Scripture. You can't find her name. She's not even talked about. Jesse is. Yeshai, his dad, his father. But no mom. Well, who's David's mom? It's written about in the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud. She's, she's named Nitzavet, the mother of David. From the Talmud, tractate Baba Batra 91a, if you'd like to look it up. The story is told about Jesse, David's father, and tells us that he was a leader of the Sanhedrin, a highly respected Jewish man there in, in Bethlehem. And as he lived there and, and raised his sons, because he was... You know, an upstanding leader in the community, he, he began to worry about his ancestry. Because, see, his grandma was a woman named Ruth. And Ruth, if you know the story, was a Moabite. And the law said, no Moabite may enter into the congregation of the Lord. And yet Ruth did, which is, by the way, God's grace. That's why she's there. She's in the lineage of Jesus. Why? God's grace. But Jesse's worried about this, and he's thinking, well, this might undermine my entire heritage and what I pass on in in my own sons here in the tribe of Judah. And so he's separated from his beloved wife, Nitzavet, as the story goes. It continues from there. He decides, he schemes to have have Nitzavet's maidservant lie with him to bear him a child who then in his mind could legitimately maintain his Jewish lineage. As the sands through the hourglass, so these are the days of... I mean, it's like a soap opera. And so the maidservant, finding out that Jesse wants to sleep with her to produce an offspring, an heir that would be legitimate, kind of like Abraham did with Hagar, 
We just repeat and repeat and repeat these things. He goes, she goes out, Nitzavet finds, or the maidservant finds out, goes to Nitzavet and says, listen, I have a counter plan. Switch places with me that night. And you go in in the darkness and, and you sleep with your husband. And it won't be me. And Nitzavet agrees. She goes in, she sleeps. And that night, David was conceived. Now we've got a problem. We have a woman separated from her husband who suddenly turns up pregnant. How's that look? And we have a man who thought he slept with one woman, but she's not getting pregnant. Now my wife's pregnant who I didn't sleep with because I slept with her even though he did sleep with her and he didn't know he slept with her. Are you with me? <laughs> so the whole thing is all convoluted and bizarre. And rather than shame her husband, Nitzavet keeps silent. Rather than shame his wife, Jesse determines to raise David as his own son. But it's interesting, and this is where it starts to become biblical. I I can't verify that this story is true. I don't know. It may be. Again, Jewish people believe it is because it's written in the Talmud. It may just be a, a story that grew up around this. But it's interesting. David comes along, and when Samuel comes to anoint the king of Israel, he goes through seven sons of Jesse, and he says, isn't there anyone else? And Jesse goes, yeah. There's David. You know, he said, why? Why was Jesse, why didn't David get invited in with the rest of the brothers? Why do the rest of the brothers treat him with such contempt when he goes to bring bread and cheese to them and ends up killing Goliath? Why throughout the Psalms does David continually have issues with betrayal and issues with enemies and issues with people set against him? Is it possible that the story is true? Maybe. Maybe it is. Nitzavet keeps her secret until David is anointed by Samuel and afforded the rightful place and the respect that he deserves. And so it's all written about in the Talmud. True story, we don't know. What we do know is David seemed to be an outcast in his own family. And we come back to verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in depravity. Okay, so we all were. But he says, and in sin, my mother conceived me. That is, she did something wrong. If you're reading it literally... So the story may very well be true that something was you know that there was deceit and there was you know even though actually the end result is the husband and wife had the child but it's an interesting story but there's a bigger truth here and it's just recognizing each and every one of us that we were brought forth in raw depravity and again it's one of the things our world refuses to accept that's the problem with the mentality that says peace on earth can be achieved by man. That with the, the right number of treaties and alignments and political persuasions that we can be a non-nuclear world. Let me explain something here. A man by the name I mentioned this Wednesday of Tyler Wiggs Stevenson has what's called the Two Futures Project. This young Baptist pastor recognized there are two futures on, on track for the world. There's a future of a world destroyed by nuclear war, and there's a future of a world without nuclear weapons, and that's the one he's promoting. You know, getting rid of all nuclear weapons. Man, it sounds great. The problem is, if we in America say we're going to get rid of all of our nukes, and you may disagree with me on this, and that's fine. I don't mean to be political, I'm just speaking a reality. If we get rid of all of our nuclear weapons, why would we believe that the rest of the world is going to get rid of theirs? It's foolish. Well, I want to believe in the goodness of man. That's the problem. That is the problem. Because you're relying on something that does not exist. There is depravity at the heart of man. The heart is desperately sick. Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 17, or right around there. Where is it, Harlan? 
Is Jeremiah 17? 16? Ish? You're the one who quoted that to me, and I think it was about my heart, thank you. The heart is desperately sick. And that's the truth. That is being honest about sin. By the way, there will be a nuclear free world when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom. It will be nuclear free. It will be a place of perfect peace under the righteousness of Jesus. Until then, an honest perspective of sin recognizes our depravity. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, I know nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. He says in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. One more thing you need to recognize in an honesty about sin. Sin is always, first and foremost, against God. Look at verse 4. David said, Against you, you only, have I sinned. And we, again, kid ourselves when we think, look, this choice I'm making over here isn't hurting anybody. You might be able to make that case. You might be able to, I'm going to go lock myself in a barn and I'm going to get stoned out of my mind and then I'm going to wake up the next day and leave the barn. That hasn't hurt a single person. No, it's hurt two people. You and the Lord. Against you, David says, and you only. I have sinned. Why? Why? Is it because God doesn't want us to have fun? No. It's because sin is an affront to His very nature. Every time we sin, we're in a, we're in a place of being an affront to God. It, it, it directly impacts Him. 1 John 1.5 said, This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. There's no darkness. If we say we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. That is an honest perspective of sin. David gives us. Secondly, the holy presence of God. Verse 6, the holy presence of God. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. In the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And sustain me with a free spirit. The Holy Presence of God. David recognized, after Nathan came to him, he recognized, man, these nine months here of, of, of living in this empty sickness, it was so empty because I missed the presence of God. I missed my fellowship with Him. I missed singing songs of praise. I missed being with Him in times of prayer. God was there. The Bible never tells us that God left David. never tells us that God departed and took His Spirit away from David. No, God was there. But David couldn't look at Him. Those of you parents, you know when you have a small child and you catch them doing something they shouldn't do and they can't look you in the eye. That's, you know what? Kids, let me give you... There are no kids. They're not in here. That's probably good because we tip them off. Because here's what kids don't understand. When you bust them, when you say, I think you're telling me a lie, they don't understand. How do you know? It's because they're doing this. They can't look you in the eye. 
And that's where David was during this time, during this season. He could not look God in the eye. And so though God was there, though His Spirit was available to David, David couldn't, couldn't commune with the Lord the way he was used to, the way he wanted to. He cries out, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. In the hidden part, you'll make me to know wisdom. God is not interested in our outer way. He's not interested in our robes. Like I said, they cannot clean you up. They cannot cover the rags of sin. And so David says, Lord, go deep to the innermost being. Go where, where all of my hidden things are. Go to that place and clean me out and bring your truth there. He says, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hyssop. What is that? Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 7 is one of the most important statements within this most important psalm in the entire Bible. Don't miss this. David says, Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Whiter than snow. I remember Isaiah saying, Come now. Isaiah 118. Actually, it's the Lord saying, Come now, let's reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool. Okay, how does that work? Cleanse me, purify me with hyssop, David says. What's that about? There's a connection between hyssop and healing. Hyssop is a plant. It's kind of a bushy plant that uh, grows there in, in the Mideast and in other places. In fact, it's interesting, years ago, science discovered that penicillin actually grows on hyssop. But to the Jew, hyssop was used to purify in a way that penicillin never can. In the Hebrew Scriptures, there are three applications, or three ways that hyssop was used to make application to the Jewish person. One of them was at Passover, you may recall. They were told to take hyssop, dip it in the blood of the Passover lamb, and paint it on the lintel and the doorpost of the house. And God would pass over the people of Israel. At Passover, Exodus 12, verse 22, hyssop was used for the leper. There was a law, an interesting law in Leviticus 14, for the leper who had suddenly become clean of his leprosy. And he was supposed to, once he had become clean of his leprosy, he had to go to the priest and this law, he had to follow through with this purification process. And what's interesting, little side note about that law, it would never be used until Jesus came and healed the first leper. And then that leper, then Jesus says to the leper, go and present yourself to the priest for your purification. Because you don't just suddenly not have leprosy (laughs) until Jesus heals it. But this law for the leper, interesting, you're supposed to take cedar wood, a scarlet string, a live bird, all together, and hyssop. Then you take another bird and you sacrifice it, and you dip this grouping in the blood of the dead bird. Imagine being the live bird. You know. But you're dipped in that. And then with that hyssop, it's shaken on the leper for his purification, and the live bird is set free to fly over the field. Blood purifies it. Dead bird blood and flying bird and with a cedar. That's just weird, man. Just weird. God has some weird stuff in the law. It paints a picture, gang. Hold that thought. It's not just for the lintel of the doorpost or for the leper. It's also for the loser. Because in Israel, as they were traveling, there was a law given in Numbers 19, verse 9. If somebody sinned, you couldn't just stop the travel... Set up the tabernacle, set up the altar, get everything going, bring in the animal, sacrifice, do the thing, because they would be doing that every single day. Because everybody sinned every day. So God says, I have a way for you to be temporarily purified until you can set up the tabernacle and offer the right sacrifice. 
Well, how's that, Lord? I want you to take a mixture of hyssop, water, cedar wood, a scarlet string, and add in the ashes of a red heifer. Mix it all up and keep that mixture and, and carry it with you. And when someone sins, then the high priest sprinkles that on them for their purification. What is up with all this? What's interesting is that Hebrews 9.19 says, When every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with the water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, and he said these words, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Does that make sense? Still, we sit there and go, cedar wood and hyssop and dead birds. It's just kind of bizarre. What is it all? Getting to fully understand this. The Jewish mind understood hyssop applied a blood of cleansing. But to fully understand it, you've got to go all the way to the cross. Cedar wood, a picture of the cross. The scarlet string, a picture of blood itself. Hyssop, the application of that blood. The blood of the dead bird, the live bird, like a dead bird sacrifice, crucifixion, live bird like resurrection. All of it, God was painting pictures of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Absolutely stunning. But you wouldn't get it until you got the cross. And then you look back and say, He's been planning this all along. God has been providing for our purification all along. And when David says, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. I cry out, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 10 verse 4, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, when He comes into the world, He says, Jesus says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In verse 10 of that passage, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. By the way, one last quick thing on hyssop. Watch this. Coincidentally, just before Jesus died, He said, I thirst. And we're told in John 19.29 that a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop. And they took it up to his mouth. He drank it. When he was done drinking, he said, it is finished. And he died. And the application of hyssop finally came full circle. The application of the blood of Jesus that cleanses you in a way that you and I, we cannot cleanse ourselves. Verse 10. Check this one out. Now I'm skipping over here a little bit. In verse 8, he does say, Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. And we've talked about that. You know the story of the wandering lamb, how a shepherd would literally break a lamb's leg and bind it up and then carry the lamb for a while until the leg was fully healed. And, and by that time, the lamb was so used to being close to the shepherd, he would not depart. He would not wander off anymore. So David, the shepherd, knows this. He says, Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. But in verse 10, you've got to note this. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And this finally answers a question that I hear all the time from people. And the question is this. I understand God wants to forgive me. I understand He wants to cleanse my heart. But I never feel completely clean. Because it's still my heart. And it's still a wicked thing. And though He's cleansed me, how do I get fully clean? I mean, it's like, you all know if you wash clothes, they never get fully clean. They never get fully clean. T-shirts always eventually start to yellow. Which is great for the T-shirt makers. They get to stay in business, but it ticks me off, frankly. 
And you can wash and wash and wash. It never gets fully clean. And sometimes people come to the Lord and they confess and they repent. But they're just, man, I'm just not sure that, how can I know that I'm fully clean? Because when David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, he uses the word for create, bara. Oh, so what? Well, let me borrow from another scripture. Genesis 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Bara, the word means out of nothing. Don't miss this point. Out of nothing, forgiveness comes. Out of nothing, He gives you a new heart. You say, I've got nothing to bring to God. I've got nothing to offer. Right on, now He can begin doing His best work. When you have nothing to give Him, He says, good, let me create a new heart in you. I will make it out of nothing, a heart that beats for me. The problem is, as long as you and I are trying to bring something to Him, something of our work, something of our, even our confession sometimes, I've said this before, even our confession needs to be repented of. Because we think if I can word it correctly and bring the right flowery confession to the Lord, I'll impress Him just enough to know. You've got nothing to give Him. And as long as we're trying to hand Him something, our hearts are not available for Bara to be recreated, to be brand new. And David says, Do not cast away from me your presence. Don't take away your Holy Spirit. You see, David had seen that happen with Saul. Saul had the Holy Spirit of God. Saul was anointed by God when he became king. And Saul began to do wicked things. And God said, All right, my spirit is done with you. I'm putting it on David. You lose. You no longer have my spirit, Saul. And David says, I don't want that to happen, Lord. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I am so thankful that we live in an age where once God has given us His Spirit, He doesn't take it away. Acts 2.38 tells us, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when God gives you His Spirit, He does not remove His Spirit. Oh, in Hebrew times He did. In Old Testament days, He could give and take His Spirit at will. But in the church age, when you give your life to Jesus Christ, God pours His Spirit out on you to dwell in you and He is always with you. Always? Yeah. Which is why Paul said, hey, your body is a temple of the Lord. Speaking of sexual immorality, Paul says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. How do you think the Holy Spirit is enjoying that immorality that you're engaging in? The Spirit is always with you. Yeah, but, but when I said I don't feel Him, that's because you can't look Him in the eye. But He's there. And I love the song by Keith Green, Rushing Wind, Blow Through This Temple, Clearing Out the Dust Within, Come and Breathe Your Breath Upon Me. I've been born again. And Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, born again to walk in the presence of God's Holy Spirit, and He will not take His Spirit away from you. You may look away. You may be unaware of Him, but He is there, present, just waiting, and probably nudging you to confess. Verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Hey, I'm aware of the time, but stick with me on this. He says, Sustain me with a willing spirit. The word willing there literally means noble. Sustain me with a noble spirit. A royal spirit. A kingly spirit. Why would David say that? 
Well, the word also means free. And something David learned the hard way is that kings tend to think they're above the law. Politicians often think they're above the law. Anyone in a position of power starts to think that they can transcend the law. Guess what? In Jesus Christ, you are above the law. In Jesus, suddenly you enter into a new nobility. doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want. That's not what I'm saying here. But Paul said in Galatians 5.18, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Well, then why do you Christians say we should follow the Ten Commandments? Because you've already been saved. Because you already have God's grace. And following the commandments and the precepts of God, man, it's just good for you. But it doesn't save you. You're above the law. You're aside from the law. You are in Christ Jesus. And ironically, people think that there's freedom in sin. You know, summer of 69. Summer of love. We're free to do whatever, you know? Put flowers in your hair and run naked through the grass. Woohoo! And, and sleep with anybody that you want to because I want to be free. And love is free. And generations following that have paid the price. People in that generation have paid the price. Having children that they didn't plan to have. And, and the children grew up and, and they hate mom and dad because the children are computer geeks and mom and dad are hippies and it doesn't work. You know? <laughs> The only love that's free is the love that comes from the Father and His loving kindness. Sin is not free. Sin always exacts a price. And ultimately the wages of sin, Paul says, is death. But there's joy in salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, he says. And that brings us to the last part, verse 13 through 19, the heavenly purpose of man. David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. When? When, when will I teach trans, when, when do I get to teach <laughs> other sinners? After he has recognized the joy of his salvation. After he has been forgiven. When they see the joy of my salvation, when they see that even rotten Rick, as sinful as I am, I've been saved. I'm a new creature in Christ. When, when they see grace, then, then, Transgressors are taught the ways of God and sinners will be converted to you. And we've really missed this in the church of this generation. We really think that if we can look more like the world and be more relevant, we can draw people in the door. And we really think that if we have the right programs to attract people, that that will get them here and then they will be converted to Jesus Christ. And it doesn't work that way. We really think that if, if a pastor will sit around and give nice, you know, short 10, 15 minute, feel good pop messages, that that will convert people to Jesus. Baloney. It won't. I'm going to go as long as I want. <laughs> it is hope in the forgiveness of sin that converts the sinner. That's what does it. Which is why, you know what? Don't hide the fact that you were a sinner, but you've been saved. You know, you get in touch with someone who you haven't seen in 10 years and they say, hey, let's all go out together. Let's, let's hang out. And they want to go to the bar. And you know, oh, wait a minute. 10 years ago, that's what I did. That's all I did was I went to the and we just went and got drunk together and that's how he knows me. Hmm. Well, I'll go to the bar and I'll hang out with him and I'll just have a beer and I'll just kind of play it down a little bit. No! That's not going to convert him. You know what will convert him? I, I, I don't do that anymore. Why do you? Some kind of goody two-shoes now? No. 
I don't do that anymore because Jesus has changed me. Do you know how many people would come to faith in Jesus if we were just real about our faith? Yeah, I was a sinner. Yeah, I was messed up. You know, we think in our families, we think when we become Christians suddenly that the rest of the family is not going to understand and, and, and we, we, we can't really talk about it because they're all going to go, eh, no, we know you. We know you. You're not righteous like those other Christian people. Yes, you are. You are different in Christ Jesus. And that is, that's evangelism, gang. Just sharing what God has done in your life. Sharing what Jesus, how He has saved you. Then you can teach others about grace. Once you've received it yourself. Verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your praises. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Watch this. Suddenly, penitence becomes praise. Remorse becomes rejoicing. Godly sorrow is replaced by glorious song. And that's what happens when we confess and we get free of, of, the, of the carnality of our lives. Man, that penitence rolls into praise. I love the scene there in heaven. It's one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. John saw it. It's a future vision. He sees something that hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen. Listen to this. Revelation Chapter 5, verse 9. I'm going to read it to you in the King James. And they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood, by Your blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Who is singing the song? Who is that singing? They sang a new song. Okay, it's a new song. Who's singing the song? (laughs) I love this. John catches a vision of the raptured church in heaven praising God. How do you know it's the raptured church? Because it's not just Jewish people. It's not just the faithful of the past. It is people out of, quote, every kindred and tongue and people and nation who have been saved. It is, gang, the song of the redeemed. And it's not rising from the African plain. (laughs) And it's not drowning out the Amazon rain. This song of the redeemed is rising in the halls of heaven. It is saved people, redeemed by the blood of Christ. They're in heaven. John sees them. He is absolutely amazed. And you should be too, because guess what? You're one of the singers if you're in Jesus Christ. You are quoted in Scripture. (laughs) Singing praise to God there in the throne room of heaven if you are a believer in Jesus today. And if you're not in Christ Jesus this morning, man, join the choir. We don't have robes. Because we don't try to cover up the truth. We have a sin nature. We do sin. In this church, we are capable of, of great ugliness here. As pastor, I am capable of incredible sin. And I know that wouldn't look good on a poster. You know, or a flyer. Come to our church, we all sin bad. You know? (laughs) But in spite of all that, gang, God does provide His own robe for you. Isaiah called it, Isaiah 61.10, the robe of righteousness. And that's worth singing about. Verse 16. David then says, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. 
You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And who cares what anybody in the world thinks of you? You confess to God because that is what He's looking for. Because He receives someone with a broken spirit. And it's wonderful. Do you see what's going on with David here? Penitence becomes praise. And now, and now praise becomes a desire to please. Now he just wants to please God. Now, now he just wants to do... I, I would give you offerings. I would give you a sacrifice. I, that's what I want to do, but I, otherwise I would give it. I know you don't delight in it, he says. But David's showing the heart of, of, of the redeemed. I want to please you. What pleases you? We sing that song. What pleases you, Lord? I want to find out what pleases you. That is the heart cry of the forgiven. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, we have as our ambition, whether at home in the body or absent with the Lord, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to Him. I want to please you, Lord. And verse 18 goes on, he says, By your favor do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. This isn't about blood of bulls and sacrifice, gang. This is about something much more important to David and the people of Israel. It's about worship. Because at the sacrifice, that's what was going on. David had the Levitical priests there and they were singing songs of praise and when people brought sacrifice and the blood reminded them that there was forgiveness for them. They're worshiping and praising God. And that's what this ultimately leads us to. Listen, if you do the church thing hoping to curry favor with God, you show up on a Sunday hoping to secure your salvation, then this church will be for you a drudgery. It'll be long... The pastor won't shut up. He'll go on and on. And the worship, man, how many songs do we have to do? And they're rocking a little loud this morning. It's just not my style. And it'll be, it'll be hard for you. Worship will become stale. Ministry will become frustrating if you're doing it to secure your salvation. Well, I better show up because I've got to have enough points stored up. No, that's, that's Islam. <laughs> go over there. Even God will begin to seem heavy-handed to you if you're doing it to try and save yourself. As David said, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. It's amazing. God is not heavy-handed. God has the most tender touch of anyone ever. And yet His tender touch feels heavy on our shoulders when we're in rebellion. Because that's the place where we're not thinking straight and we're not feeling accurately. But the forgiven... The redeemed, those who are washed and clean of heart, they love to worship because they love to love the Lord. They love being in Bible study because it's God's Word. And I'm hanging on every one. They love to fellowship with other believers because (laughs) we've got a secret. He's really forgiven us. He really loves us. He really loves this entire world and wants to see people saved. Pleasing God is a pleasure when you come to Him in confession. What is the heavenly purpose of man? It's to worship God and enjoy Him forever. I know that's the Westminster Catechism, but it's right on. To worship God and enjoy Him forever. That's why we were made. That's why we're here. Let me end with this. Jesus was invited to the home of Simon the Pharisee. 
Simon wasn't doing it because he liked Jesus, but he was trying to figure out Jesus. And so he invites him into his house, and he goes there. And according to the custom of the day, if, a, if someone is invited to your home, not you know like a casual friend, but like a visiting dignitary or someone of importance or someone of renown in the region, you would invite them in to eat, but you'd leave the door open, and anyone who wanted to come could come. It's kind of an attitude of hospitality. If you just want to come and sit and listen in on our conversation, doors open. And so here's Jesus sitting there. Here's Simon the Pharisee, probably some other you know, uh, church rulers, Pharisees sitting around there. And a woman made her way in. She comes walking in and you can almost see the heads of the Pharisees turning. What's she doing here? What's she doing here? And of course, they're not saying anything to each other. I'm imagining this. This is just my sick imagination, but I'm thinking they're looking at each other going, I hope she doesn't say anything about me. Because this was a sinful woman. This is a woman of ill repute. Use your imagination. Well known in the town, especially among the guys. And she comes in weeping. And she falls down on the floor before Jesus. And the Bible tells us she starts to cry on his feet. And the dust from his feet starts to turn to mud. And so she takes her hair and begins to wipe his feet. Clean them off, you know, under the toes, getting the nails. The whole thing. And then, she starts to kiss his feet. And if that's not bad enough, she starts to take out perfume and, and put it on his feet. Awkward! You know, all the guys are standing around watching this thing. And Simon, Simon the Bible tells us, is thinking in his heart... This man was a prophet. He'd know what kind of woman this this is. I'm wondering how Simon knew. You know? How do you know what kind of woman this is, Simon? And we're told that Jesus, well, he did know. He knew her heart. He knew repentance was playing out right before him on the ground. And so he says to Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon replied, Say it, teacher. A money lender had two debtors, and one owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. And when they were unable to pay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus says, You have judged correctly. Way to go, Simon. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, You see this woman? I entered your house, but you gave me no water for my feet which would be rude, by the way. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, which you would give to someone of importance. Simon didn't. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, another offering of grace. But she anointed my feet with perfume. And for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many have been, note that, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he turned to her and said, Your sins have been forgiven. Now I can't prove this, but I think that Jesus and this woman must have had a meeting before this. Why would you say that? Because Jesus says your sins have been forgiven. And because she comes in not seeking salvation, not seeking forgiveness for her sins as much as falling before His feet and thanking Him for having forgiven her. And Jesus even said it Himself. For she, uh, her sins which are many have been forgiven for she loved much. Listen, don't get that wrong. 
Her sins weren't forgiven because she loved much. She loved much because her sins were forgiven. And the attitude of this woman is a response to the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And that's what David is talking about there in Psalm 51, that the proof of a forgiven heart is always seen in the amount of love that flows out of the person who has been forgiven. You look around this place, I guarantee you, the most loving people in this barn are those who are most aware of how much God has forgiven them of their sin. And the most hard-hearted in this place are those who just haven't figured it out yet. I hope they will. What kind of love for Jesus does complete forgiveness stir up in you? He who has been forgiven much loves much. Father, I pray that You will tap our hearts this morning. God, there are some sitting here right now who need to confess secret sin. Who just need to come up and and speak it to You, Father. Who need to be honest about it. Because it's killing them. And I pray, Father, that that they will hear and, and will have heard through this time that You are a God of loving kindness, not waiting to pounce and crush, but waiting to restore and to heal and return a person to the joy of salvation. Father, there's some here this morning who have never received You as Lord and Savior. Who stand outside of fellowship with You, perhaps because they never recognize the need to come to Jesus. I pray it will happen today. Holy Spirit, knock on the doors of all of our hearts. Impose Yourself upon us and cause us to respond. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.